Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Latin America and the Caribbean suffered under some of the world's tightest lockdowns, and, as elsewhere, that has had calamitous effects on the region's economies. We take a look at the prospects for long-term recovery. And artificial insemination is a tried-and-true method in the animal world, just as it is for humans. But things are a bit more complicated when the animal is a shark we examine a pioneering effort to keep shark populations stable and healthy. First up, though. There are two main theories about the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. The first, and the one most widely held by scientists, is that a virus jumped unaided from animals to humans. The other is that it first emerged from a laboratory in Wuhan, China, where the pandemic started. Conspiracies have swirled around the Chinese state-backed lab. It's thought to have conducted research into diseases in bats. Multiple sources say this may be the costliest government cover-up of all time by China. The lab leak theory has long been viewed as lacking credibility, one for the conspiracists or the cranks. But with some crucial questions still unanswered, the idea has been gaining traction. Yesterday, President Joe Biden asked his intelligence teams to look deeper into the pandemic's origins, giving them 90 days to report back. In a statement, he suggested there was no clear view among those teams about which of the two scenarios was more likely. It's a muddy picture, When the World Health Organization visited Wuhan in February, it seemed to come down strongly in favor of zoonotic spillover, that unaided jump. Yet the circumstantial evidence seems to be piling up, like reports this week that three researchers at a Wuhan lab became ill a month before the outbreak, and the seeming reluctance of Chinese officials to help in getting to the truth. The theory of the lab origin keeps popping up for the simplest reason, that the outbreak of COVID-19 started in the city of Wuhan, which also happens to house the world's centre for bat coronavirus research. Natasha Loder is our health policy editor. The first known site that SARS-CoV-2 emerged was a fish and animal market in the city. And it's no more than about 26 uh, kilometres away from the Wuhan Institute of Virology as the bat flies. It's also close to another centre, the Wuhan Centres for Disease Control. And both of these places worked with bat coronaviruses. But we've spoken to you a couple of times before about the origins of the virus and the the lab leak theory has not been the one favoured by the science that we've had. 
Yeah, that's right. And I'd say that that's still the case. What's changed really is that people are giving the lab leak hypothesis more credibility. For what it's worth, my opinion has always been that a lab leak hypothesis was entirely possible. And that sort of seems to be what the world is coming around to thinking as well. When we first covered this story, I co-wrote it with Shashank, who is our defence correspondent. And it was very clear from the biosecurity experts that we spoke to at the time that they felt a laboratory leak was not only possible, but something that was quite feasible given the number of lab leaks that had happened in the past of dangerous pathogens. So what's really changing is that, by and large, I would say last year, mostly this hypothesis was treated as a sort of crank theory, possibly because it was connected with the Trump administration who were keen to push it, but also because it was tied to people who said that this was something that had been deliberately engineered by the Chinese. And that still remains quite a crank hypothesis, the idea that it was a bioweapon. What we're saying now is that, well, we know that at least two places in the city were working with back coronaviruses. One actually was tinkering with them. And we know that lab leaks happen all the time. And so this needs to be given serious consideration. But when last we spoke to you about this, it was at the time of the World Health Organization's visit to, to Wuhan. And a lot of questions then were, were left unanswered. It was not clear that they had even come to firm conclusions themselves. That's right. When the scientists visited in February, they hadn't made any firm conclusions. They certainly felt that a natural origin, some kind of spillover from wild animals, uh, was much more likely. But after they left China, in fact, just before they left China, they gave a press conference and they were really pressed on this lab leak hypothesis. And when they were in China, my impression was they felt obliged to say that they didn't think it was very likely. We also looked, for example, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the state of that laboratory, and it was very unlikely that anything could escape from such a place. Now, the media took the WHO press conference and ran with a, a sort of story that was that the lab leak hypothesis had been effectively ruled out. That wasn't what they had said. And what was really interesting was that after the team had left China, the head of the WHO rather unusually said that all hypotheses remained on the table. And that was widely seen as meaning that he felt that the lab leak hypothesis needed to be considered as a possibility. And in fact, later he went on to specify that he didn't think that it had been investigated well enough. And that was really the beginning of a sort of moment when people kind of thought, okay, maybe this is something we do need to take more seriously. And since then, we've seen a series of shifts with scientists kind of saying, aha, maybe we should look into this a bit more. And one thing that's been fanning the flames this week anyway, apart from President Biden's statement, is the claim that three workers uh, from that Wuhan lab fell ill in the month before the outbreak. Yeah, these claims were first aired by the State Department in the dying days of the Trump administration. And it's still not clear that these reports are actually accurate at all. And it's also probably no accident that these claims are surfacing again now, because what's happening is that countries are gathering for the World Health Assembly. And this is where countries all get together to set the priorities for the World Health Organization in the coming year. And America wants another investigation. It wants to be seen to act firmly with China because politically, that's what it has to do. 
So it's useful for the Biden administration to be seen as acting tough on China and pressing it over the lab leaks and pushing for another investigation. So how much of this question is now epidemiological and how much of it political then? Yeah, I mean, China, as you would expect, is very defensive on the issue and feels that it's politically driven. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has even suggested that there are questions over the US's own biolabs. And the reality is that if this virus has leaked from a laboratory, the Chinese government doesn't want this to be known and will have covered this up. So the idea that they're suddenly going to throw open their doors to a forensic investigation by outsiders is ludicrous. It's not going to happen. And then that leaves us in the position of wondering, well, by pursuing this, are we losing the opportunity to actually nail down a natural spillover event that happened. So it's a really curious position to be in. But this lab leak idea is, is getting more traction. You have always said it's, it's at least entirely possible. What would it mean, though, if it did prove to be true? What would change? What would change is that it would put an entirely new light on the whole scientific endeavor. And I, I think perhaps that's been the reason why scientists have been slow to accept this as a real possibility is that it's kind of too horrible really to think about very hard. And that is the idea that in actually trying to understand these viruses for good intentions to find out more about the next pathogen that could cause a pandemic in order to avoid it. The horrible reality might be that in the pursuit of a noble goal, you've ended up causing this terrible devastation. Now, let's just remember it may be that this has had a natural origin. But if it didn't, then that's really got to kind of raise questions about how we pursue particular bits of work and how we justify it as well. Thanks very much for joining us, Natasha. Thank you so much, Jason. Whatever the ultimate origin of the novel coronavirus, the fight against it carries on, and inoculation remains the best way out of the crisis. For some of the best analysis you'll hear on the Global Vaccination Project, listen to our sister show, The Jab, available wherever well-regulated podcasts are administered. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The excess death tolls from the pandemic have been high in Latin America. And for the most part, lockdowns have been exceedingly strict. Lockdowns that have led to deep recessions. As more prosperous economies bounce up and out of COVID restrictions, the region's governments are looking at a much longer road to recovery. Latin America and the Caribbean, in economic terms, has been incredibly badly affected over the past year by the pandemic. Callum Williams is senior economics writer at The Economist. So if you look at GDP, which is one measure of economic output, 
Latin American economies contracted more than twice as much as the global average in 2020. That's the worst of any region in the world. And then if you look at those countries which have done stunningly badly, a lot of them are in Latin America. So for instance, Peru's GDP fell by 11% in 2020. Why though? Why has Latin America had it so much worse? So the kind of obvious explanation, I guess, is to do with the virus itself. Latin America has seen more deaths per million people than basically anywhere else. And what that's meant really is that governments have had little choice but to impose extremely strict lockdowns. So there's a measure, a quantitative measure that Goldman Sachs produces of lockdown severity. And this is a combination of the strictness of the rules with a measure of basically how much people abide by those rules. Latin America has, on average, had the toughest lockdown. Toughest how, though, relative to lockdowns in other places? So we are talking lockdowns that I think even people in most of Europe would be unfamiliar with. So this is a situation where nobody was allowed to leave their home except to buy groceries. And, you know, you can just imagine under those conditions, really doing any sort of economic activity becomes pretty impossible. And so that's the answer, the economic crunch is entirely down to to these strict lockdowns? So one thing I think is really important is to do with the structure of the economy. The share of jobs that require people to be in face-to-face contact with each other is much higher in Latin America, even than in other emerging markets. So for instance, things like tourism, certain kinds of manufacturing, certain kinds of retail, that kind of thing, it just so happens those kind of jobs are really common in Latin America. And so when you have a situation where people are not allowed to be in face-to-face contact with each other, it means that a higher share of employment becomes impossible. I think it's also a question of inequality. What you have in Latin America is an unusually high share of people who work in domestic work, you know, cleaning, childcare. There are some really harrowing stories of people who don't really have any access to PPE or are not really able to isolate if they're sick. So the Latin American economy was was already kind of predisposed to suffer in the event of, of a lockdown. Elsewhere, though, governments have been able to, to mitigate some of this stuff. I mean, have, have Latin American governments stepped in? Yes, they have. So governments all over the world have launched very large fiscal stimulus programs. Now, compared with previous recessions, it is true that Latin America has done more by way of fiscal stimulus. However, All countries around the world have done more. And when you look at how big the fiscal stimulus is or has been in Latin America over the past year, you find that even compared with other emerging markets, it's been very small. What you find is in countries like America, Australia, and even a few emerging markets, $1 of lost output has been met by $1 of additional deficit spending by the government. In the Latin American case, $1 of lost output has been met by about 30 cents of extra deficit spending. What's the prescription, though? I mean, if you had Latin American leaders in in front of you, what, what advice would you give? If you look, for instance, at the US, it just has some important lessons, I think, for the utility of fiscal stimulus in a pandemic situation. So what the US did is it focused a lot of its resources on sending money directly to people. This is something also which Japan did and Canada did, and which actually Brazil has done a little bit of as well. And I think the evidence suggests that sending hard cash into people's bank accounts is a really effective policy during a pandemic. And if you look at these countries that have done that, they've recovered pretty strongly. What's happened in a lot of Latin American countries, though, is that they've focused their resources elsewhere. So on 
building up healthcare systems and in public investment and that sort of thing. Now, don't get me wrong, there are really difficult trade-offs here. In a health crisis, it's completely understandable that you'd want to focus on resources on building up healthcare systems. But I think probably the history books will say that the sort of focus of the stimulus in Latin America wasn't quite right. So in terms of advice, I would say any spare money that you have, send it out to people because that's going to be the most effective policy right now. But in the long run, cases will eventually go down. I mean, how well do you think Latin American and Caribbean economies will recover then? There will be a bounce back. The question, I think, is whether the bounce back will be as strong as it is in other countries. So what you're seeing in recent weeks is that the sort of high frequency or real-time indicators of economic activity have looked pretty bad in Latin America, even as other countries start on their sort of post-pandemic journey. Most economists seem to think that 3 to 4% GDP growth this year is kind of what they're aiming for. That is not going to be really enough to substantially reduce unemployment. Some people have pointed out that commodity prices have been soaring in, in recent weeks, which is sort of true. But if you look at the commodities that Latin America is particularly dependent on, their prices actually are, are still a lot lower than they have been for the majority of the post-financial crisis period. So the future is looking brighter than it was last year, but still not particularly bright. Thanks very much for joining us, Callum. Thanks, Jason. to tell you something about baby sharks. No, 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 no. Not, not that baby shark. The real kind. The kind that are bred in captivity. Shark populations are in decline for all kinds of reasons. So researchers play matchmakers. But the way they've traditionally done it doesn't lead to the kind of genetic mixing that would make for healthier populations. So a team of researchers at Ripley's Aquarium of the Smokies and the Aquarium of the Pacific in America is trying something different. The way it used to be was that you'd just have to transport sharks, usually male sharks, around from aquarium to aquarium or perhaps from the wild into your aquarium if you wanted to create some new baby sharks. Peter Silk writes about science for The Economist. But there were big problems with that, mainly logistical problems. What kind of problems? Well, it was a huge challenge, especially with large animals. It's expensive to transport them around, also dangerous. There was evidence that it was stressful to the animals themselves. And on top of all that, all you were really doing was taking genetic diversity away from one place, say one aquarium, and putting it into another. But in situations where numbers are on the decline in general, that didn't do much good, really. So what this team of U.S. marine biologists have been doing was focusing on moving genes around from aquarium to aquarium just by a sperm, which is obviously much cheaper, more efficient, and easier than transporting adult male sharks. I'm not sure which sounds harder, getting sperm out of one shark or into another. Right, well, artificially inseminating female sharks might sound very dangerous, and indeed it probably would be if you tried to do it with uh, big and nasty species like great whites or tiger sharks. But actually it's quite safe when you focus on the docile, sluggish, white-spotted bamboo sharks, which are only about three feet long when they're fully grown. They're very popular in aquariums. And importantly, they lay eggs every couple of days during their breeding season. And the insemination process takes only about 10 minutes. It's quite quick and painless. The females are taken up to the surface, sedated, flipped over onto their back with their head and their gills under the water and manually inseminated with the sperm. And that's it, returned to water all within 
a couple of minutes. Okay, sounds relatively painless for the sharks. I mean, what's, what's new about what these researchers are doing here? Well, it's never been done on this scale. So from 20 females who were isolated and inseminated, there were a total of 114 fertile eggs. And of those, 97 hatchlings were born. So is that an indication it'll be useful for, for other shark species then? It should be, especially in aquariums. I mean, what this did was advance breeding programs like this on a number of fronts. So first of all, the researchers continued to develop safe and reliable methods for collecting semen and also artificial insemination of sharks. And it proved for the first time that artificial insemination was possible after cold storage. So some of the semen samples were transported across the country and stored for up to a couple of days in ordinary refrigeration units. And these, after 24 hours, were just as successful as fresh semen in fertilizing females, although it started to decline after that, the success rate. And yes, all of this can be extended to other species, especially shark species, some of which don't reproduce very often at all in aquariums, species like the sand tiger shark. And they are considering bringing this to the wild also, especially for the semen collection part, because if you can collect semen from wild sharks and then return them without taking them into aquariums and away from their native populations, you can take that genetic diversity from the wild, bring it to the aquariums, continue a healthy, robust, small population without further limiting numbers in the at-risk wild populations. Peter, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.